Good morning, Grace. As was mentioned earlier, we had some uh, tech issues in the first service, and that's not surprising because spiritual warfare is real. Now, we're not a charismatic church that sees the devil behind everything. I mean, if we forget to order coffee and run out, we're not going to blame that on him. But it's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. So, of course, the devil is going to be working and doing everything that he can to keep you and I from hearing about Jesus. In fact, I've been at it since 4.30 this morning. Things have been going wrong in my day. And I just chalk it up to, you know what? The devil's trying to work and get us all distracted. In fact, and this is kind of gross, but I have to share it with you. In the first service, do you ever, have you ever burped and like you threw up in your mouth? That was me in worship in the first service. That never happens. Now, why did that happen? Just another distraction. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 13. We're taking a break from our series in the Psalms of Ascent because this last week I was talking with one of my boys, Asher, about this passage that we're looking at today where this man came back from the dead when he touched the dead bones of Elisha the prophet. And so we were talking about it this week and kind of the passage was kind of rattling in my, around in my brain like a bag of bones. And then I thought, you know what, this would be a great passage to preach on Resurrection Sunday, but not because a dead man came back to life. I wanted to share this passage with you because of what it tells us about Jesus, that he's so kind, and he's so merciful, and he's so compassionate, and he's so gentle to sinners like us. So 2 Kings chapter 13, and because it's Sunday, you knew this was coming. There's an episode of The Twilight Zone. If you're new, I, I use too many Twilight Zone illustrations. But there's an illustration of The Twilight Zone that sounds a lot like the passage we're going to look at today. And if you're not familiar with the book of Second Kings, then you're in for a real treat. If you like sci-fi, the book of 2 Kings is your book. Because there's a lot of true but very weird stuff that happens in this book. And this passage in 2 Kings 13 sounds like it could have been the script for an episode of some 1960s sci-fi show. I'm surprised that Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, never brought this story to life. No pun intended. But Rod Serling did have a knack for writing and finding interesting stories that always ended with some twist of some sort. For instance, the episode titled Execution, which first appeared on TV on April 1st, 1960, was based on an unpublished story by George Clayton Johnson. The setting of the episode is 1880, and an outlaw cowboy named Joe Caswell is about to be hanged for shooting a man in the back. Here's the opening monologue by Mr. Serling. Commonplace, if somewhat grim, unsocial event known as a necktie party. The guest of dishonor, a cowboy named Joe Caswell, just a moment away from a rope, a short dance several feet off the ground, and then the dark eternity of all evil men. Mr. Joe Caswell, who... When the good Lord passed out a conscience, a heart, a feeling for fellow man, must have been out for a beer and missed out. Mr. Joe Caswell, in the last quiet moment of a violent life. 
And so just as the noose around his neck tightens and he drops, Caswell disappears, leaving the bystanders confused. And then Caswell appears 80 years into the future and he finds himself inside the laboratory of a scientist who used his time machine to snap Caswell out of the past and bring him into the future. The scientist then observes the rope burns around Caswell's neck and he knows that he has brought a troublemaker into the future. And when he tries to send the outlaw back in time, the scientist is killed by Caswell. After this, Joe Caswell runs through the modern day streets seeing cars that he calls carriages driven not by horses. But Caswell can't handle the sights and the sounds and the bright lights of 1960, so he returns to the laboratory hoping to be sent back in time, only he runs into Paul Johnson, a thief who was in the process of robbing the place. And so a fight ensues between the two, and the thief Johnson kills the outlaw, Caswell. And then Johnson accidentally sets off the time machine where he is transported back to 1880, and then he finds himself surrounded by a group of confused cowboys because he has time-traveled back 80 years to find himself at a party, a necktie party, where he finds himself at the end of the rope that was reserved for Caswell. Closing monologue by Rod Serling. This is November 1880, the aftermath of a necktie party. The victim's name? Paul Johnson, a minor league criminal and the taker of another human life. No comment on his death save this. Justice can span years. Retribution is not subject to a calendar. Tonight's case in point in the Twilight Zone. And that's sort of like what you have going on in 2 Kings chapter 13. There's a dead man who suddenly wakes up at his own funeral because his dead body touched the bones of the dead prophet Elisha. If that doesn't sound like the Twilight Zone, then I don't know what does. But it's not science fiction. This really happened. God's word is true, and this crazy sci-fi-like episode really happened a long time ago to a man in ancient Israel. And the reason it got recorded in God's word is not because God likes science fiction. The story was recorded in God's word so that we would know this about Jesus. Your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. If you are a Christian, your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. And that's why this story is in the Bible. That's the purpose of this crazy story being recorded in God's Word. God wants you to know that your sins actually move Him to pity more than to anger. In fact, this is what Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, he said, Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. And think about that grace. For those of us who are disciples, those of us who are Christians, those of us who have repented of our sins, we've turned away from our sins and we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone. He's our everything. He's our joy. He's our treasure. For those of us who can make that claim, then Goodwin's statement is true. Our sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Now think about how crazy that is. Your sins, the sins you did last week, the sins you did last night, even this morning before church, actually move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Wow. 
Is that how you view Jesus after you have Netflix binged on sin? Do you see him moving towards you in pity, mercy, and compassion? Or do you picture him full of wrath and anger, his arms crossed, smoke coming out of his ears? Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, continues his thought. He says this, Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, he takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that has the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh. But he hates the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. Now, I've shared this quote with you before, but I think it's justified coming out of the passage. Jesus hates our sin. No doubt about that. Jesus hates sin. Don't ever forget that. But for those of us who are disciples, who are in union with him by faith, trusting in him alone, then Jesus comes to us to ruin our sin But his pity is increased for us, just like a parent's heart breaks when their child is sick. We hate the sickness when our kids are sick, right? We don't hate the kid, we don't hate our children, and that's how Jesus is with his people. He hates the sickness of sin that we all have, but oh, how he loves us. And that's exactly what is happening in 2 Kings chapter 13. That's exactly why a dead man came back to life when his body touched the bones of a dead prophet. And that's exactly why another dead man came to life 2,000 years ago, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, in your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So here's where we are in the book of 2 Kings. The great prophet Elisha has died, and we get no details on his death. There's no fanfare like when President Kennedy died or when Princess Diana died. All we get is three words. So Elisha died. And so Elisha, the great prophet who represented the word of God to Israel, he's gone. Now this is sad news, not because Elisha himself died, but because of what Elisha represented. He represented as prophet the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel. Because the prophet, the spokesman of God's word is gone, then that means God's word is gone. And that's a sad place to be. So when you read these words about Elisha pushing up daisies, you're supposed to feel the sting a little. And then just as you start to recover from reading Elisha's short obituary, you read these three awful words, bands of Moabites. Now, why are those awful words? Those are awful words because of the history of Moab and Israel. 
The Israelites and the Moabites did not have a good working relationship. They did not play well together in the sandbox, if you will. They did not like each other. Here's why. One, the Hebrew in Hebrew, Moab means from father. The Moabites came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So the Israelites didn't like that. Secondly, the Moabites did not let Israel pass through their territory when they came out of Egypt when Moses led them out of Pharaoh's of the slavery that he had them in. Third, Moabite women seduced the Israelites and 24,000 Israelites died from whoring themselves with the daughters of Moabites. Fourth, the Israelites were told to exclude the Moabites from the assembly of the Lord. And fifth, the Israelites were oppressed by the Moabites and their king Eglon. You can read about that in Judges. So, relations were not good between Israel and Moab. And we see another reason why here in verse 20. Because every spring, the Moabites had it on their calendar to invade and plunder Israel. So as these Israelites are reading the eulogy at the graveside service of their friend, and they see these Moabite raiders coming, they just toss the corpse of their dead friend into a cave that just so happened to be the grave of, and just so happened to contain the bones of the prophet Elisha. So imagine their surprise when they take off running from the Moabites and they look back and they see their friend coming out of the grave with his legs and liver working as good as ever. At this point, they're probably more scared of their zombie friend than they are of the Moabite raiders. Their dead but now alive friend was probably like, hey guys, what are you running for? Hey Charlie, come back, Charlie, Charlie. Or what if you were Mr. Corpse and you just woke up or came back to life and you recognize the Moabite raiders and then you have to start running? That's worse than hearing your alarm clock go off and immediately having to sprint somewhere. He was dead. I imagine he was a little stiff and needed to stretch a little. But then he looks up and sees the Moabites coming and he's got to take off running too. Not to mention what was going through his head. Wait, I died. Huh? I thought I was dead. And we'd love to get some details here. We'd love to get some extra, extra information, but we don't get it, right? Like, how did he die? Where did his spirit or soul go when he died? Was he in heaven? Was he in hell? What was it like when they said, you got to go back? What was it like when he returned home later that day and said, oh, Lucy, I'm home? What did his wife think? She probably got an expression like Lucy, like, what are you doing here? We would love to get extra information behind the scenes of what was happening here, but we don't get that. All we are told is that this corpse was resurrected. This dead man came back to life. We get no details, and here's why. Because the Bible is not out to answer all of our questions or to satisfy our curiosities. The Bible does not care if you don't get all the details. That's not its goal. The Bible wants to give you all the pertinent information that you need, but it has no desire to answer all of your questions or to satisfy your curiosity. It will tell you the most important stuff, which I'm about to do. So I'm sure it freaked out those Israelites, freaked them out to see their friend come back from the dead. And even though this passage sounds like a zombie movie, even though it's weird and bizarre and odd and strange, it is also very beautiful. It's beautiful because it gives us a picture of the relentless 
love that Jesus has for his people. I mean, who knew? A story about a zombie, if you will. Who knew that a story about a zombie could demonstrate Jesus' undying love for sinners? Who knew a story about a corpse arriving in a casket only to leave in a convertible could be a picture of the overwhelming mercy of God? Who knew? Well, let me tell you who knew. God knew. And that's why he included this bizarre story in 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, let me explain. Let me set the context here for you in the book of Kings. First and second Kings are one book in the Hebrew Bible, and what we see throughout the book is the slow, gradual, moral decline of God's people. They slowly begin turning away from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and they start chasing after other gods, and they eventually are sent into exile, into slavery in Babylon for 70 years. And it's such a sad story because in this book, Jesus waits patiently throughout this book for his people to return to him, for them to come home, but they just keep running away. And so two of the main themes in the books of First and Second Kings are God's grace and his promise. His grace and his mercy are all over this book. Jesus keeps sending his prophets who represented the word of the Lord to his people, calling them back home. And they keep walking away. But we also see Jesus keeping his promise. His promise to his people. It's all the way through this book. But eventually, the sin of the nation of Israel accumulates. And by the time you get to the end of this book, the end of 2 Kings... God's people are driven away into exile and slavery for 70 years in Babylon. And so in order for us to understand this weird sci-fi story in 2 Kings 13, we have to understand who the audience of 1 and 2 Kings was. The original audience who first received the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, this word from the Lord, was the nation of Israel in captivity, living as slaves in Babylon. And so this whole dead man touches the bones of a dead prophet and comes to life must be filtered through how the first original audience heard it. And so how did they hear it? Did they read these verses in 2 Kings 13 and think, that sounds like an episode of the Twilight Zone? Did they think, I would be more scared of their zombie friend than the Moabites? I would be more scared of a zombie bite than a Moabite? It's how they heard this story. Is that how they heard it? As they're in exile, away from their home, the purpose of this weird story being recorded in God's word was to remind the nation of Israel that God's power was still available to them. Even though they were in exile as they were reading the book of 2 Kings, God wanted to remind remind them that his mercies were still new every morning. And so verses 20 through 21, though weird... Though bizarre, they're actually oozing with mercy. They may be strange, but if you handle them, what you'll find is that you get mercy everywhere. This passage is like glitter. You know how glitter just gets everywhere? That's what you see with this odd passage. Mercy gets everywhere. Mercy gets all over the place when you handle this passage. And mercy is what we all want, right? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We all want mercy, don't we? What happens when you're pulled over by a cop? You don't want the ticket, right? The difference is you ladies have an advantage because you can kind of bat your eyes, but the men have to be like, 
How about them Yankees? Hope you don't give me a ticket. We all want mercy. We don't want to get what we deserve. And if we're speeding and we get pulled over, we want mercy, even though we don't deserve that. So this dead man coming to life when he touched the bones of Elisha was God's way of saying to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I won't leave you in exile in Babylon. I will bring you home again because I keep my promises. Of course, Jesus could have said it that way. But isn't this story a little more exciting? God could have just said, My power and my mercy is still available to you if you will turn back to me and turn back to my word. Jesus could have said that, but that's kind of vanilla. It's still good news, don't get me wrong, but it's sort of bland. But a dead man waking up at his own funeral? Now that's a lot more exciting, if you ask me. So Jesus comes up with this over-the-top way of driving home the point that he is merciful and faithful and that his power is still available to his people through his word. Let's have a dead man show up alive at his own funeral after he touches the bones of a dead prophet. That will get their attention. Listen, don't ever accuse the Bible of being boring. Jesus wants to keep you awake during your Bible reading and while you sit in church, especially on Easter. So he records true stories like this to keep you awake. Oh, you may not have written a story about a zombie coming out of a cave grave, but that's what makes the Bible so enjoyable. God's word goes against our boring, vanilla ways of thinking, and it loves to shock us to get our attention. The Bible is full of surprises, and it's not boring. It's far from boring. Please don't ever accuse the Bible of being boring. In fact, if you read the Bible long enough, you'll come across weird stories like this one. And the main theological point of this weird story is exactly what Puritan Thomas Goodwin said. Your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Jesus is moved to mercy and compassion towards sinners. That's the point he's trying to make with this stand-up, pun intended, stand-up dead guy when he stood on his feet. Jesus is moved to mercy and compassion towards sinners. That's why he came to the earth. It's why he came back from the dead on Easter. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy always has the last word. Always. Sin. Our sin, our mess, the ugly situations that we create in our lives, all the drama that we're all involved in in some way, all the mess that we create and that we find ourselves in, that ugliness and that messiness does not have the final word. The ugly mess in your family right now, the ugly mess in your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, with your friends and your family, all that stuff that you've probably contributed to, does not have the final word in your life. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Always. So Thomas Goodwin continues this idea when he says this, If your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion, despite his abhorrence of them. 
What Goodwin is saying is that just like a parent is moved to compassion when their child is sick, that's how Jesus is towards us. We don't hate our children when when they get sick, do we? We pity them. We hate the sickness. We hate the fever that they have. We hate the sickness that has made their eyes bloodshot like zombies. We hate the stomach bug. We hate the cancer. We abhor all the sickness, but we don't hate our children. We pity them. We love them. We hold them in our arms and comfort them. And our heart breaks for them. And that's what your parents did for you when you were sick. Our heart moves out in compassion when our kids are sick, even as we hate the sickness. And that's exactly how God is with us. That's the point that this weird passage is making. We're sick with sin. Yes, God hates our sin. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he pities us. Oh, how he comes in mercy, not giving us what we deserve. He comes in mercy to sinners like us. Listen, we are sinners. I was telling my children this this morning as we're getting ready for church. We had a a theft in in the church last week, and, you know, they were surprised, you know, really. And so I was talking with them about, it's just, you know, people are sinners, and they do these things. And I, and I even told them, when I was in seminary, I remember someone buying a brand new Bible at the bookstore, and they left it in the library on a table with all the books that they were studying as they were writing a paper. They went to the bathroom and came back, and somebody stole their brand new Bible. Somebody studying to be in ministry stole a Bible so they could read it. We're sinners. In fact, at Dallas Seminary where I went, they had cameras in the bookstore because people would steal books people who would become your future pastors. It wasn't me, by the way. But I've got a list of sins if you're interested. Right now, Christian, Jesus responds to your sins with compassion. He will not kick you out. Just as a parent would never kick out their sick child, so too Jesus does not kick us out. He responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence and utter hatred of them. Your misery can never exceed his mercy. As one pastor said, God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. That's good news. That's the good news that the nation of Israel needed to hear as they endured captivity in a foreign land for 70 years. 2 Kings chapter 13 is saying this. You may mess things up with sin in your life, but God's ability to clean things up is greater than your ability to mess things up. God always meets our mess with his mercy. And that's the point of Easter, the point of the resurrection, because you don't get any more messed up than your sin is going to result in your death, right? Because we're all born in Adam, we're all born sinners, and therefore we all have a date with the grave. We all have a date with death, right? Death is the most perverted and twisted thing that can ever happen to a human being. Our spirit and our bodies were never meant to be ripped apart but like that. But because of Adam, because we're all born in Adam, because we are all sinners and prove it with the way we live, we all have a date, a destiny with death. That, that's a mess that you can't could get out of. Apart from Jesus, 
Jesus comes and resurrects us. His ability to clean things up is greater than our ability to mess things up. And because of our sin, we have messed things up bad because we are all going to die. That might be just what you need to get you through Resurrection Sunday and next week and next month. That dead man who came back to life in 2 Kings chapter 13 wants to tell you this today. Your sin, your mess, your drama, we all have plenty of it, right? Your drama is no match for Jesus, no match for his promises. Jesus is the redeemer and he specializes in redeeming awful situations so you can trust him. He is that good, he is that kind, he is that merciful, he is that sovereign, he is that powerful. He has power even over death itself. Your mess that you're in right now is no match for Jesus, no match for his promises because he can raise dead people. So the mess that you have, piece of cake for him. Jesus comes and says, I can raise dead people from the dead. You got a problem in your family? Bring it to me. Don't believe me? We got a dead man. Live. You got a problem in your family? This is all off my notes. I'm getting worked up. Sorry. You got a problem in your family, some relationship problems, work. It's no match for the power of Jesus and the resurrection proves that he can bring people back from the dead. He can help you with whatever it is you're going through in your life. Whatever terrible things that have happened to you that plague you, paralyze you, you can come to Jesus and he will help. Our mess is no match for his promises And that's exactly the message that the Lord was trying to get across to the nation of Israel as they were enduring 70 years in captivity and slavery because of their sin and because of their rebellion, because they turned away from the Lord. In fact, that's what the writer of 2 Kings says next. Look at verse 22. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord, Yahweh, was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned toward them because his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Isn't that beautiful? Such sweet words. He was gracious to them while they were turning away from him. He was compassionate, had compassion on them while they were turning away He didn't turn away. It's just he turned toward them. They were giving him the stiff arm, and he just kept going after him. They spurned him, and he's, no, not going to let you go because of his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Such good news. Such good news about how Jesus deals with sinners like us. Now, another weird thing here is that we move straight from the dead man came back to life story to this. There's no decent segue here between these paragraphs. It's rather abrupt, but these two paragraphs are related. They go together. In fact, the writer of 2 Kings is still driving home his point about God's mercy. He could care less about transitions and seamless segues between paragraphs because he wants to keep insisting that Jesus is as merciful as he claims to be. Yahweh The Lord, Israel's God, was gracious to his people. He had compassion on them even when they were rebelling against him. He didn't turn away from them. He didn't leave them nor forsake them. And he didn't destroy them 
even when they deserved it. During the time of this oppression by the king of Syria, Hazael, Yahweh, the Lord, did not cast his people away from his presence. They were cast away into exile, but not from his presence. By this point in the story of 2 Kings, they should have been banished from the land because they kept turning away, but they weren't, and they weren't because of one word in that paragraph, the word covenant. That word reminds us that when hope should be gone, it's not. The word covenant says to us, we both know how bad you've been. We both know that hope should be gone, but it's not. That's what the word covenant says to us. We both know how bad you've been. We both know that hope should be gone, but it's not. And that's what Jesus says to us all the time. Jesus comes and says, look, we both know how bad you've been. And we both know that hope should be gone, but it's not. That's the gospel, my friends. That's good news. Now, what's interesting is that the same Hebrew word that was used in verse 21 of the dead man being thrown into Elisha's grave is the same Hebrew word, shalak, that is used when it says that the Lord did not cast them or throw them from his presence. Now, at the end of 2 Kings, Yahweh does cast or throw Israel into exile, but even then he does so unwillingly. He patiently waits for them to repent, but they never do. His heart's desire is not to punish his people, but to be with them. And though he may cast them away for a short season, his love is strong enough to overcome death. He will resurrect them out of exile one day. That's what the dead man is saying to them. He, as I was resurrected out of that tomb and came back to life, I was thrown there and I came back to life, resurrected. You were thrown away, or you will be by the end of this book, thrown away into exile And Yahweh can resurrect you and bring you to life again. And we know that God did cast them away. He did throw them away. But he never cast them away from his presence. Why? Because he keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant, the covenant that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is a covenant-keeping God. He's not fickle like us. He's faithful. And that's precisely why the writer of 2 Kings records what he records here. He wants to extend hope to those who are in exile by reminding them that Yahweh, the Lord, keeps covenant. Ralph Davis says, how do you spell assurance? C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. Covenant. That's how you spell assurance. That's what's happening here. Assurance is offered to God's people because he keeps covenant, because he is merciful, because he is faithful, because he has a people and wants to be with them. This was the fundamental reason why Israel was spared under the oppression of the Syrian king Hazael. It was all grace because God has a people and he wants to be with them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? God has a people and he wants to be with them. You see this in the book of Exodus, the the, uh, directions that are given for for building the tabernacle and the way the nation of Israel was to, to live in the midst of their wilderness journeys. Where was the tabernacle? Right smack dab in the middle of his people, surrounded by all the various tribes, right in the middle, as if Yahweh was saying, I can't get close enough to you, my people. I want to be with you. I want to be right in the middle of your lives. 
Tim Keller says, to stand in the presence of God, that is what the gospel is. The gospel is not primarily about forgiveness. It's not primarily about good feelings. It's not primarily about power. All those things are byproducts, sparks. It's primarily about the presence of God. This weird story in 2 Kings is about sinners being able to stand in the presence of a holy God. And we can because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Because he lived a perfect life He never sinned. He lived a perfect life, perfect obedience to God's law on our behalf. And he died on the cross. He paid it all. He took the curse of the law for our sins on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And that's why you and I can stand in God's presence. But this weird story also reminds us of the point of miracles in the Bible. Ray Dillard says, miracle is redemptive. And it points forward to the restoration of all things. This weird story points forward to the end, to the final resurrection, where some will be raised to new life and some to eternal death. The people who do not bow their knee to Jesus, they will enter into the dark eternity of all men that Rod Serling spoke of. And as Rod Serling said in his closing monologue, justice can span years. Retribution is not subject to a calendar. God's judgment against the sin of mankind, those who do not bow the knee to Jesus, can span years, eternal years, into and beyond eternity. There's no calendar in eternity. Retribution cannot be penciled into one day on the calendar of eternity. Justice is elastic. It spans eternity. And I don't want that for anyone here. Will you come home to Jesus today? He's merciful. He's kind. He will forgive you of your sins so you can be with him. And he will raise you up to eternal life if you are united to him by faith. Let this weird story in 2 Kings 13 nudge you to Jesus. Let this story of a dead man coming back to life nudge you toward another dead man who came back to life. Jesus. And for those of us who are already united to Jesus by faith, this miracle of the man who had a run-in with Elisha's bones... Well, dim bones are a reminder and they give us hope that we will be resurrected one day too. We will come out of our graves. Isn't that crazy? What happened to this guy in 2 Kings will happen to us, but we will come back from the dead with new glorified bodies that will never die. We will be raised to new life just like Jesus because of Jesus. This weird story gives us hope that Jesus conquered death, that death no longer has dominion over us. This odd story gives us a glimpse of the city that is to come where, as Revelation 21 says, there will be no more death or mourning. This strange story reminds us that if you are united to Jesus in a death like his, then your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Your sins, Christian, the ones you committed last week, last night, this morning, Move Jesus to pity more than to anger. But we have a hard time believing this, don't we? 
We just can't seem to believe that Jesus is as good and merciful as he says he is. We struggle to think of him being so merciful to sinners like us. Because like, I'll never do it again, Jesus. Forgive me. I promise. You ever done that? Now you're lying in church. On Easter. If you're going to lie in church, don't lie on Easter. We've all done that. I'll never do it again, Jesus. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'll never do it again. I'll be generous. Two minutes later, we do it again. We struggle to think of him being so merciful to sinners like us. One more quote from Puritan Thomas Goodwin, because I like him so much and because I'm the one preaching. He says this, So Jesus also lays open his own disposition in Matthew eleven twenty eight. In other words, he's saying, Jesus tells us clearly what he's like in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Then Goodwin says, Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ or contrary thoughts of Christ. But he tells them, his disposition, the way he is there, by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. So he's saying, we're, we're more inclined to think of Jesus being hard as nails, rigid, angry, smoke coming out of his ears. And Jesus, so Jesus clearly tells us what he's like because he knows we're going to think that. And he says, I want you to know what I'm really like. I'm meek and lowly of heart. I'm kind, I'm gentle, I'm compassionate to sinners. And we're like, no, you're not. You're angry, arms crossed, smoke coming out of ears. And Jesus says, this is what I'm like. Good one continues, we are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. Jesus clearly tells us how he is. He is meek, lowly of heart. And he tells us this because we are so prone to have thoughts of him as being as hard as nails. We tend to think that Jesus is as stiff and rigid as that guy's corpse before he met Elisha's bones. And so Jesus tells us that he is merciful in order to allure us to him because he knows we want to keep our distance. We want to keep our distance. And Jesus, I'm going to tell you what I'm like because I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. Jesus knew that we would think that because he is so holy, which he is, that he must have a sour disposition against us. And that's why Jesus tells us repeatedly that he is merciful and kind and gentle to sinners like us. Here's the bottom line. The bad news is that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. And the good news of the gospel is that everything that the Bible says about God's love is true for you. That's what Easter is all about. The death of Jesus is proof that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. But the death of Jesus is also proof that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The death of Jesus is God exclaiming to you, I love you. Will you believe that today? Will you come home. Jesus is waiting. Steve Brown tells the story of how his friend and mentor, Fred Smith, showed up at his own funeral. He said this, just before I got up to speak, I looked up and there was Fred grinning on the big screen. He had recorded the video shortly before his death. And then he quotes Fred, seeing as how there are so many people here, Fred said, it would be a shame for me not to say something. 
Fred was an incredible communicator, but I don't think I could remember a time when people listened more intently to what he said than after he died. Jesus, too. Only, in the case of Jesus, it wasn't a video. It was the real deal. Will you listen to Jesus today? He came back from the dead. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray to the one who conquered death and gives eternal life. Father, we thank you that you aren't boring. Your word isn't boring. You have true stories that shock us to get our attention. And thank you that you picked this one to show us how merciful and compassionate and gracious you are. Were it not for Jesus, Lord, we would be lost. We thank you that he lived the life that we all should have lived, but we can't because we're sinners. And he died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners, and you raised him from the dead. May the Holy Spirit rub the gospel story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection into our pores even more and more this morning so that we leave here today rejoicing in how good you are. Do it for your glory and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.